Welcome to the Atlanta Legacy Makers Podcast. I'm Floyd Hall. Lane Shakespeare is a Decatur native who is a leader in Atlanta's corporate and philanthropic communities. In this conversation, I chat with Lane about his family's roots at the Wren's Nest, making an impact at MailChimp, and his perspective on a new Atlanta way. Lane, how you doing? Floyd, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm glad to have this moment with you today, Lane. Lane, let's start off with your Atlanta story. Floyd, I'm a uh, Decatur resident and a Decatur native, and so I've always felt a little bit weird about calling myself a native Atlantan because for all intents and purposes, that's what I am, but also... Uh, you know, just one city east of Atlanta. Um, One of my earliest memories was the groundbreaking at the Fernbank Museum of Natural History. I was like five years old, I think. And my grandfather had done a lot of fundraising um, for the museum, and he had passed away about two weeks before the groundbreaking uh, very sudden kind of thing. And so instead of him doing the groundbreaking with a hard hat and the shovel, um, they sent his family, his his kids and his grandkids um, out to do it on his behalf. And so I was five years old in a little seersucker suit and a hard hat. And I thought we were going to dig the whole thing. Um, and it turns out that's not the case. It's more of a ceremonial <laughs> kind of thing. But that was one of my earliest memories and I've always felt kind of rooted almost from there, not just in, in the ground and <laughs> being a little confused about everything, my surroundings, uh, but then also, you know, living so clearly in the shadow of someone else. And in that case, my grandfather um, and wanting to not, not even wanting to, but being a part of the civic fabric wasn't really a choice. It was just something that I had to do and I got the privilege to do um, almost right out of the gate. So, you know, I think the, the location of Fernbank is really appropriate. It's right on that line uh, between Atlanta and DeKalb County, right where that famous sign that says leaving Atlanta is. Um, and I've always loved that little stretch. It feels very liminal um, and it feels very one foot in, one foot out. And, and that's where I've always been been comfortable with Atlanta. I love when folks who grew up in the metro area talk about the specific nature of where they grew up and what that means to them, because I think that also helps um, build the fabric of why Atlanta, um, the metro area and the sense of community is what it is, because people really have a love for um, those intimate um, city centers, if you will, um, that are close to Atlanta by proximity, but also kind of help make the metro area what it is. so talking about your family's legacy, but more so how you began to step into that. Um, I know that a lot of people may connect you with MailChimp, but before that, people um, understood your ties to the Wren's Nest. And I would love for you to maybe talk about those early days of your time at the Wren's Nest and what that meant to you and how you began to evolve as a leader in that space. Yeah, so the Wren's Nest is um, the historic home of Joel Chandler Harris, who was a writer, 
and a journalist and a folklorist in the late 19th century, early 20th century in Atlanta. Um, and his home has been a house museum uh, since 1913. It was established by Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Andrew Carnegie, and the school children of uh, Atlanta Public Schools established it, uh, this kind of memorial. And, uh, you know, it, it had different kind of different kinds of leadership. Uh, for most of the 20th century, it was, it was negative, uh, pretty explicitly racist. Um, and then in the 80s, uh, a, a new organization kind of took over to interpret uh, the legacy of Joel Chandler Harris, which is primarily rooted in uh, recording African-American folklore. Uh, they did a phenomenal job for a few decades. And uh, then some things happened with the staff. And by the time that 2006 rolled around, um, you know, it, they were pretty desperate uh, for someone young and naive and unemployed. Um, and there I was, uh, fresh out of college. And they, they really were kind of at the end of the line in terms of who they could hire and how much they could pay uh, to get someone to, to stick around. Um, I am the three great grandson of Joel Chandler Harris. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I didn't have a job at the time. And they, you know, they're like, you know, Lane's an English major. He just graduated. He didn't have much to do. Um, you know, let's give him a shot for three months. We'll pay his salary for three months. I think it was $24,000 a year at that, at that time. And then, you know, if it works out, um, uh, it, it, he can go for it. So that was what the, the board uh, of directors decided. Um, I was 23, didn't really know much about Joel Chandler Harris, um, it, despite being related to the guy. Um, the Wren's Nest was never somewhere that I liked <laughs> going when I was growing up. It was the place my family drugged me to. Um, and But I saw a, a distressed asset um, to Atlanta, uh, something that was really anchored in the community in West End for a long time. It was really meaningful. Um, it was really complicated. Um, and it had a lot of the kind of issues that I, I thought were really interesting and, and, and juicy to kind of deal with that I think were maybe scary um, to other people who would be considered for the role. Um, and so when I got started, I was 23. I didn't know anything about house museums. Um, and I feel like that was what allowed me to work there for five and a half years through a recession, um, helping interpret not just the legacy of Joel Chandler Harris, in, in many ways, that's kind of the background to it, but, but really the le legacy of African-American folklore and how uh, a white writer and this, this oral tradition that's transcended oceans and centuries came together in one specific spot in Atlanta and then changed popular culture forever. Um, that part was really interesting to me, and I was so lucky to have the opportunity to, to kind of explore it in many different ways uh, and uncover things for myself over, over a period of five years. Lane, when you talk about the notion of, of history um, in Atlanta, I mean, that's part of the Atlanta brand, if you will, um, and understanding how to take something that has such a strong historical perspective and update that, can you maybe talk about what that meant to you? What was your, what was your hope in, in attempting to sort of update something for the current times? And what were your major, I guess, hurdles, if you will, if you, if you faced any, to sort of make that happen? So my hope uh, at the Rinsness, and this wasn't something that I went in 
thinking about. <laughs> I went in thinking about uh, it would be great to have a job that wasn't at the hardware store where I'd been previously working. Um, I, I went to the Wren's Nest because I saw an opportunity um, uh, of something that had been underappreciated and misunderstood. Uh, but really, it wasn't even misunderstood. It was just not understood. Um, the Br'er Rabbit stories are uh, were first African folklore uh, that became African-American folklore um, that were it, around the time of Reconstruction um, when Black Americans were, were moving into cities at a really rapid pace. There were a number of, of folks who attempted to uh, who were afraid that the, the stories were going to basically disappear. Um, and so there was a trend of, uh, a burgeoning trend of folklorists who were trying to record these stories and write them down lest they disappear. Um, Joel Chandler Harris was the most um, successful at that. Uh, and it was the first time that, that really black culture had appeared in kind of mainstream white American culture uh, for, a, for an international audience. Um, and it's the confluence of those two things that I think is really interesting in an Atlanta perspective. Um, but then in, a, in, in an international perspective, you know, Br'er Rabbit is, is a, kick, a figure um, that is distinctly American, but also just completely influential. So without Br'er Rabbit, um, there's no Winnie the Pooh. Um, without Br'er Rabbit, there's no Peter Rabbit. Without Br'er Rabbit, uh, there's no Mickey Mouse. This was the first time that animals walked and talked like people um, in popular culture, and it was the first serialized narrative uh, for children. So it, it was a really huge jump, uh, narratively speaking, um, for uh, American culture, and it was presented as um, children's literature, uh, but really it was, it was stuff that families kind of consumed all, all together. I, I loved how impactful that is and how forgotten it is. Um, one of the big challenges is that it was so successful that Disney made a uh, now infamous movie uh, that interpreted three of the Br'er Rabbit stories um, called Song of the South. Uh, and it was a huge hit. It was, a, it was big in 1946 when it came out, uh, premiered in Atlanta, uh, won some Academy Awards, and it has long been um, in Disney's vault because it is so controversial, because people consider it to be racially insensitive, um, and because it is uh, it, it, because it is many of those things. And it, the confluence of that kind of branding of the Burr Rabbit stories has made it somewhat taboo. Um, because Disney is so uh, good at what they do in terms of branding things, in terms of their reach, um, it, 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 they ended up locking away a lot of this history in the vault alongside with their interpretation of the film. And so what I loved about this opportunity is learning for myself about the Burr Rabbit stories of which, you know, I'd only heard of really, uh, you know, growing up here and there, but then uh, in my African-American literature class uh, in, in college and then my Gilded Age class in college. And it just seemed like there was a lot more to the story than this is bad, or this is racist, or this is just about Joel Chandler Harris, or this is just about um, African-American folklore. It's, it's about all of those things. Um, and I think it's about all those things in a distinctly Atlanta way. Um, at the same time, you know, functionally as a house museum, uh, it's not exactly a hot ticket. You know, folks aren't, aren't really 
banging down the doors to get into most house museums these days. Uh, so we had an opportunity to um, be one of the first house museums to uh, embrace the internet. Um, so you know, we we knew that our website was going to be very important. Uh, we knew that Twitter was going to be important. That Facebook, these things were really emerging in 2006, 2007, 2008, um, and we were primed to help tell the story of the Burr Rabbit stories and of Joel Chandler Harris, and to help dissect all of these things and kind of make it easier for people to understand what exactly is going on through these new mediums. And so we achieved a lot of success, um, both because the subject matter is so rich, uh, but also because we were able to focus on telling clear stories and explaining things more clearly uh, for an idea and, and, and a movement that folks really didn't have a lot of information about. There was a lot of feeling about it and a lot of assumptions about it, uh, but our challenge, which we were really excited about, is to help provide some information and context uh, to, to help um, folks understand exactly what was going on with, with the Wren's Nest, with Joel Chandler Harris, and with Bear Rabbit. Well, Lane, you ended up leaving Wren's Nest and moving on to MailChimp. And if my math is correct, you're heading into your 10th year since that transition point for you. And... I'm wondering, you know, as you step into your leadership role at MailChimp, um, what were some of the, the things that you look back upon your time at Rensness to say, this really helped me out at MailChimp, or this really helped drive what I wanted to accomplish in my next role? You know, when you're working for a small nonprofit, um, and, you know, a, a good year for us at the Rensness would have been a budget of a quarter million dollars. And that was really, uh, you know, w when I came into that position, we were about $120,000 in debt, um, in addition to having raised, have to raise our annual budget. Um, and so we were able to get it up to a quarter million dollars. And it, it's a struggle. And it's not just a struggle because it's a house museum, which is not, <laughs> not everyone's cup of tea. And it's not just a struggle because it's controversial um, in, to many people or in some regards. It's a struggle because working at a small or medium-sized nonprofit, you got the deck stacked against you. And you've got to be uh, pretty good at everything, but you've got to be really good at raising money. And, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of conviction going into my job at the Wren's Nest. I felt like, you know, this is an experiment. We're, we're going to see how it goes. I don't know a whole lot about it, but this is a great opportunity. But one conviction I did have was that this work should be a lot easier. Um, and I took that with me to my job at MailChimp because you spend, if you're an executive director at a nonprofit, um, you know, you spend a lot of your time thinking about raising money. And then you probably spend some of your time thinking about what if I could make this a little bit easier um, for other folks to raise money? Or what if I were the one to be able to help make decisions about who gets funded um, and what the process is and who determines what good work is. There's a lot of frustration that builds up in the nonprofit community in particular, I think, um, about the process and power dynamics and funding. Um, and so if you spend five years doing that, uh, you, you get a lot of daydreaming done. And I didn't enter a role at MailChimp where, you know, I, I would be on the other side of the table. I, I entered, I worked at MailChimp because I loved the branding challenge 
uh, of working at what was then an email uh, service provider that people had really strong positive feelings about. Um, I was much more interested uh, in, in, you know, just having a job at a company, uh, not necessarily getting to make the decisions about how nonprofits worked or who got funded. But eventually, as Mailchimp grew, and it was growing, you know, from the moment I, I well before I got there, um, it was like being, it's been like a little bit like being on a rocket ship. Um, the growth has been substantial. But as we've encountered that growth, there's expectations, especially in Atlanta, about how a, a company interacts with the community, um, how it participates, uh, whether it does, whether it doesn't. Um, and I felt like those years at the Wren's Nest really prepared me and those five years of daydreaming about, you know, how can we make this better for small, medium-sized nonprofits? Um, it prepared me to be, uh, you know, when, when someone was needed in that role at MailChimp, um, I was happy to raise my hand um, because I knew exactly what the world that I wanted to live in. And it, I was dissatisfied with the way um, that nonprofits had been treated specifically in the corporate community. Um, and I was able to take that kind of chip on my shoulder and apply it, uh, luckily, years later uh, to my role at MailChimp. MailChimp's brand as an Atlanta-based homegrown company is due in large part, I would I would assess, um, to Mailchimp's connection to the community. Do you do you have a sense, or at least internally, do you you know think about how much of that goodwill that Mailchimp has developed in Atlanta comes from the work that you do in supporting Atlanta-based nonprofits? I think the work that we do. Um in interpreting what MailChimp is about um, in the community is, is really important for our employees, for their families, and, and for the community. Uh, it, our purpose is to empower the underdog. So MailChimp serves small business primarily, but really any kind of small organization um, where the chances of success are 50-50. Uh, are, are you know, it, within five years, um, a small business owner is not going to have that same small business. Uh, they'll have closed for some reason, uh, and 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 it's a hard road for them. And what Mailchimp does is make things just a little bit easier for them. Uh, I've always felt like you know nonprofits don't need to act more like businesses because they are like businesses. They just have more stakeholders uh, from day one and more compliance from day one. So it's even just a little bit harder. Um, as well as hard as it is for small businesses, because they've got that many, many more people to um, speak to, as opposed to just selling a product. And I've always felt that, you know, if we were able to do things that actually served the small, medium-sized organizations, um, and that considered their needs first, um, rather than coming from a place of corporate social responsibility, where you know it, it, it's what's expected of you, and you're maybe atoning for something that your company has done, but instead positioned your company uh, as an active participant in the community. I, I, I've always felt like our, our brand would would really reap rewards from that. And luckily, you know, finding a, a company like Mailchimp, there was no need to reposition the brand. It was it was already what we were already doing. We we're serving small, medium sized businesses. All we needed to do was acknowledge that within our community, our backyard, uh, we could really make an impact 
for small, medium-sized nonprofit organizations, particularly in the arts, which have been overlooked for so long um, and by the corporate community in Atlanta. Um, I, I, this is <laughs> related. I, I think Atlanta has is often satisfied with with having one of something, um, whether it's Peachtree Street, uh, whether whether it's Sweet Auburn, whether it's the airport, whether it's the Woodruff Arts Center. We're always satisfied with having one thing and then moving on. And that creates a lot of big winners like the airport. It's the, it's the, I love living here because the airport is one of the, it's the busiest airport in the world and, in my opinion, the best one. Um, but it, our way, the Atlanta way, in my mind, doesn't create a lot of winners. And what I've always loved to see is, to, is creating a lot more winners. And I think the small and medium-sized nonprofit organizations are exactly where those winners should come from. They're the folks that are already doing the work, solving the problems on the ground. They just need someone to believe in them and often someone uh, in, a, in a corporate position to let other people know and other brands know that it is okay to take a risk on a small organization that might not have all of its uh, T's crossed or I's dotted. Uh, but they've got a lot of uh, gumption and passion and knowledge about what they do. Uh, they just haven't had someone to believe in them just yet. Um, and so that's how we've kind of translated um, our work in the community um, to helping build the brand, because I think that is important. If it's not aligned with what MailChimp's brand is, it comes off as, as, as not true. Um, it's got to make our employees proud because we want to be able to keep doing this work. And we also want them to keep working at MailChimp and building a great Atlanta company. Uh, but then we also have to serve uh, the missions and the visions and the people working at these small nonprofits that are really stitching our communities together in an often quiet or overlooked kind of way. Speaking about MailChimp's brand, I think MailChimp's brand is also very strong because there's great marketing attached to it. Do you have a favorite MailChimp marketing campaign or branding campaign? <laughs> um, I think, uh, so <laughs> I'm biased because I used to listen to a lot of podcasts on behalf of MailChimp. I listened to way too many podcasts and um, we we ended up sponsoring a number of podcasts and taking a lot of chances on smaller startup podcasts. This is back in 2012. 2011, 2013, when it, when podcasts weren't brand new, but it was the industry was was still burgeoning, and uh, we helped get a lot of shows off the ground. One of them was the Serial Podcast uh, back in 2014, and it was an opportunity uh, that we knew was great. Uh, we we saw that Sarah Koenig is an amazing storyteller from This American Life. Uh, we knew that. Uh, her, you know, her pedigree, her experience was was kind of unmatched. And because of our relationships um, in the podcast industry, when Serial was getting started, they asked us first if we wanted to help sponsor, and we said sure, um, no questions asked. Uh, you know, we get we said yes in 30 minutes, and they went to 10 other companies, and each of those other companies said no. Um, and so we weren't intending to have an exclusive um, deal, uh, sponsorship deal with the Serial Podcast, uh, but it ended up that way because we were, you know, living our our values, living our purpose, 
we were empowering the underdogs trying to take who were trying to take on something new in a new format uh, that most folks weren't comfortable with. And I think a lot of our other competitors or a lot of other podcast sponsors were instead looking for uh, more concrete returns on investment. Um, and then when that came out in early October of 2014, Serial immediately changed the game for podcasting. Um, and our ad within Serial became a, a, a meme unto itself um, where we, were, we had written some copy and submitted it and um, people on the street um, had read, read the advertisement um, and then that was, that was it. We didn't really even approve the advertisement. We heard it along with everyone else. And it ended up having a whole life of its own, and which was chaotic and really successful, uh, and in some ways too successful. Um, and a, but what it really demonstrated to me was, um, you know, Mailchimp is a company that's living its values and living its purpose in all the decisions that we make. Um, and if we if we do that enough, uh, we're going to be successful uh, in terms of marketing our story and building a great product for our customers around the world. Mailchimp is such an Atlanta brand and is seen as an Atlanta brand in Atlanta. Um, but I'm wondering, do you have a sense of the role that Mailchimp plays as an ambassador for Atlanta outside of Atlanta, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Floyd. Um, and, and that's something that uh, I, I think folks are still often surprised to learn that MailChimp is not only an Atlanta brand, but we had been since day one. <laughs> and day one was a long time ago. It was, it was 20 years ago when Ben and Dan started this company. Uh, so we've been Atlanta, an Atlanta brand for quite some time. Um, because we work in software, um, our, our reach is really uh, global, and it, and it has been for, for many, many years. Um, it's easy to use. It, the copy is clear. We, we have great design and a great customer experience. So you know, it helps that you know English, but you don't, you don't have to. As a result, um, you know, MailChimp's reach um, has been pretty substantial globally. Uh, and and that's, we're not alone in terms of Atlanta companies. You know, we have such a great network of really diverse Fortune 500 companies that serve all kinds of different sectors. It's, it's really impressive what Atlanta's business community has built. Um, but what I noticed is that a lot of times those companies either grow or, or continue to grow and have been big for a long time, and they want their brand and their community brand, their corporate social responsibility to act globally like, like the big brands that they are. And for MailChimp, there was always an opportunity to say, well, we've got this global perspective because we work in software and, and it's just distributed globally no matter what. Um, why don't we apply our corporate social responsibility and our community work really locally um, so we can solve for impact in the work that we do, um, as opposed to trying to, to, to build a global brand and then match our community work to that globalness. Um, I think that that's a great way to uh, <laughs> really make your budget diffuse um, and less impactful than it could be. Um, and so the difference for us is, is taking that global perspective and applying it really locally. I think there's a risk in that um, because, it, you know, that means that Atlanta, Atlantans have a lot of pride um, in, in, in what companies like MailChimp do uh, for the community. Uh, but if you are in Alberta 
or um, Albuquerque, you might not have that same uh, perspective. And so our, our job going forward is to kind of help match um, uh, folks around the world, uh, help them interpret what our, what our whole brand is. Uh, and I think Atlantans know what that is. Uh, but I think we still have a long ways to go in terms of letting folks around the world know what we stand for in our community, uh, where we come from, and how we're making change. Lane, as someone who has deep family ties to Atlanta, as well as works in a space where you're able to sort of advance Atlanta culture or be around that culture, um, both with nonprofits as well as in the corporate spaces, um, you mentioned the notion of the Atlanta way earlier. And I think the Atlanta way is something that a lot of native Atlantans understand from an innate standpoint. We kind of just get what that means when someone says it, we kind of just have an instinctive way of interpreting that in a way. Um, but I wonder if you could think forward about a new Atlanta way or a next Atlanta way or an evolution of the Atlanta way. What would you like that to look like or to feel like or to represent for the generations going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Floyd, but I would say the old, the Atlanta way is the understanding of civil rights leaders and the business community um, doing what's quote unquote best for the city uh, through, through agreement and uh, incremental mutual progress together. Um, and I feel like that has worked for a lot of the 20th century um, and, and I feel like a new Atlanta way, you know, and this isn't <laughs> a theory necessarily, but but it's something that I I, I don't know I I would like to see happen is um, you know when Andre 3000 uh, said I think it was back in 1994 the South's got something to say um, I feel like that was the beginning of building an Atlanta way through culture and it really harkens back to what uh, the influences uh, at the Wren's Nest and Burr Rabbit and Joel Chandler Harris. Um, Harris knew that, uh, you know, change wasn't going to happen through the editorial page. It wasn't going to happen by, you know, writing it plainly. It was going to happen through culture. And, and change happens through, um, you know, this, it, it happens through pop culture and it happens through storytelling and it happens through, um, folks who trust other folks listening uh, to their neighbors, it happens that way. And I think the, the new Atlanta way is much more rooted in that kind of neighborliness, that reliance on culture uh, in ways that are big and small. So whether you are an artist who is just getting something off the ground, whether you're an arts organization um, who is uh, really catapulting uh, artists into, uh, into the stratosphere or into new di different uh, dimensions, or if you're the film industry here in Atlanta, um, or the you know the music industry as well, like I think that is the Atlanta way that's really going to have um, much more of an impact beyond uh, 285. Um, and I, so I, I've always thought that being more culturally based as opposed to ideolog ideologically based is a way to impact change, um, not just in your backyard, but if you focus on your backyard. Uh, folks are going to be attracted to it. And I think we're starting to see, you know, tw 25 years after Andre 3000 said the South's got something to say, you know, <laughs> folks have been catching on slowly and surely. Um, and I think that that is the Atlanta way that I would love to see uh, continued uh, to, to evolve. 
Um, I think the old Atlanta way uh, and the current one uh, definitely has a place and it's definitely still successful, um, but it, it, it doesn't have to be the only way. I think there's a couple of different ways to it. What makes you feel most at home in Atlanta? Whether it be a place or a song or a feeling, just what makes you feel the most um, at home or grounded in Atlanta? You know, Floyd, we're, we're writing this, uh, we're recording this during the pandemic. And I hadn't been to the office in uh, seven or eight months. I think at home for me, I, I love where, where we're at. Ponce de Market is on Ponce de Leon, which is a street I've been up and down more than any other street um, in my life. It feels like millions of times at this point. Uh, and it feels like a, like a, like an older Atlanta. It's also at the intersection of the Beltline, which is a newer Atlanta for sure. Um, and it, it, neither of these things are without their problems. Uh, but I, I love that intersection and it feels like the fabric of the city is, is kind of right there. And I also love the, the, the Ponce Market. It is in the old Sears building. I, you know, it's, it's the capital of commerce for the 20th century. Um, and yet at the same time, you've got companies like MailChimp occupying in the 21st century, defining what commerce is now and what it will be. Um, so I love that spot because Ponce is so great and old and weird and there's so much going on. And then the Beltline represents a way in Atlanta that is finally building something that is for people. Um, to enjoy as, as, as themselves uh, instead of in their cars. Um, and I think that juxtaposition is really important uh, because I, I, I'm a forward-looking person and a future-looking person, but, but we've got to know how we're rooted in the past. And I think that that intersection right there of Ponce and the Beltline really uh, helps Atlanta feel like home for me. Lane, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And this was a really great conversation. Thanks again. Floyd, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Atlanta Legacy Makers is an initiative led by Central Atlanta Progress and the City of Atlanta. Special thanks to our amazing partners, Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, Atlanta Public Schools, Constellations, Gene Kansas Commercial Real Estate, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech, One Atlanta, and Supporter Report. Atlanta Legacy Makers is hosted and produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Music by Smith & Cash. Last but not least, thank you, Atlanta. Atlanta.